0: As evil gets bolder and presses in against us and darkness seems to encompass us in whatever situation we might be in, the last thing that God's people should do is back away from the truth or back away from our worship or back away from the boldness of our proclamation and our courage and our praise to the Lord. our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to continue to be the ones who praise Him and glorify Him in the highest because He is great and wonderful and worthy of our praise. And so this morning, in the midst of whatever circumstance you might be in, in the midst of the darkness that presses in upon us in our culture, in our setting, I have very good news for you this morning and I want you to hear it. But when the time had fully come God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Father, we are... Here in your presence, we have been blessed by our opportunity to be together and share with one another the the great things of God, to lift up our voices in praise and to pray and to call out to you, Lord, that sets us apart as different from all the other peoples of the world, the people who call on the name of the Lord. And we have been able, Father, now to hear the proclamation of your word and what is yet to come. And so, Father, I pray that you would lift up our hearts, lift up our heads. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who is in charge of all things and purposes all things according to his great and powerful plan and will. And so, our Father, I pray as God's people, we might become bold in our proclamation, that we might be encouraged with the truth, that we might praise you with... with um, exuberance our Father, and that the joy of the Lord might be our strength, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, my only goal is that you might be encouraged with the wow factor of Christmas, that you might once again look at it and see what God has done for you. Every detail is laid out for us here. I was reading, of course, from the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. We're going to look there this morning in depth at at each of these phrases. Each detail is a spectacular piece of doctrine that teaches us about the greatness of our God, His control, His sovereign love for us, His grace and His mercy, and what He has done for us that that we might be people who understand fully what the Christmas message is. In a time when people need desperately to hear what the truth is. And obviously we, we need to understand that, that the Son of God in this picture of Christmas has invaded our earth. And invites all who would be faithful and, and, and reach out to Him that He might invade our hearts. That we might experience Christmas in our own lives. I believe that this is probably the first actual New Testament recorded account of Christmas. The way our Bibles are laid out, we often think, well, Matthew was the first, and then Mark, and Luke. That's not how it, just because it's laid out that way is not the way it was necessarily recorded. In fact, this is probably the earliest of the New Testament writings. And, and this, these two verses are probably the first that was set out by pen and paper to record the truth of Christmas. And so it is packed with doctrine, and um, the Apostle Paul places it right here in the middle of his letter to the Galatians that it might be a breathtaking presentation and portrait of what God has done for us. Most of us probably can remember um, our favorite or, or most significant Christmas gift we ever received. And if we think hard enough, it probably had something to do with something we really desperately needed and couldn't believe we got or it was something that shaped our lives for years to come. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about the amazing gift that Christ, that God has given us, the amazing gift of Christ Jesus, which is what is urgently needed by every heart and is uh, something that will shape your life for the rest of your life. And so if our Bibles are open, I want to talk to you about God's amazing Christmas gift to us uh, with respect to... Um, God's great vision and His plan for us. Now, I want you to know that w- with every great vision, there are basically three elements. There's a problem, there's a clear solution, and there's why you should respond now to that clear solution. And God has already established the pattern of what great vision is. Our God is the great visionary. He's the one who who brings His purposes and His great and grand plans to be. And, and as He presents His vision to us, it... it is generally laid out in that pattern, where there is a problem that is laid out, there is a grand solution that is brought to the problem, and then there is a reason why you should respond to it. And, and that's precisely what he does here. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in packaging this presentation of Christmas, um, bookends the uh, verses 4 and 5 with a gigantic problem. The hopeless Reality of humanity. Notice in verse 3, it says there, "...so also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world." In other words, the hopeless reality of all people outside of Jesus Christ is that, the, that we, are, we were in or are presently in slavery to destructive forces that are pulling all the strings of the lost masses. In Ephesians, it talks to us about we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are doomed because of that. That's the simple reality, the horror of being powerless to destructive forces. And I said that he bookended it because by the time you get to verse 8, you realize that he's talking about these destructive forces as being those that are not gods, by nature not gods, or are demonic forces. And so all of this package deal of the horrible reality, the horrible mess, the hopeless mess of humanity, is that pulling all of the strings of the hopeless masses are destructive forces that seek to destroy, steal, and kill Now, um, I pretty much had most of this sermon put together long before Friday. When we, as a people, were brought into a confrontation of what destructive forces Paul is really talking about here. The uncovering and unmasking of unmitigated evil and wickedness that would go into a classroom and destroy 20 little six-year-olds and teachers. And I know that you as God's people are going to be put on the firing line to answer questions about such things if you haven't already. And if you haven't already, you will have to answer And I introduced to you this morning that this is not a time for God's people to crawl into a cave and hide. This is an opportunity for us to be bold in our proclamation about the truth of our universe. The big question that is thrown out at you or will be thrown at you is where is God in all of this? Where was God? Let me tell you something that I've been trying to urgently tell you as we've been moving through the book of Galatians. We are in a spiritual battle of unthinkable proportion. Most of us spend a lot of our time thinking that we are safe and we are fine and everything's okay. The simple truth is that what happened on Friday morning in Connecticut was just a tiny opening of the veil of what is really happening in our universe. The universe of principalities and powers, evil and wickedness. And I want you to know, if you don't already know this, that unless the restraining hand of God's gracious and merciful hand were upon our world all of the time, were upon our classrooms and our churches and all of that, Every single six-year-old would be gunned down across this country, across the country to the south, across Europe, across every country in the world. Because Satan's purpose and agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy. And only because God restrains him is he unable to cause mass murder in gigantic proportions. That's just one evil event that's happened in Connecticut. We know what's happening in Syria and around the world where evil and wickedness is having its way and destroying people. Where was God? Where is God? God is giving us every breath this morning. God is keeping us safe from the hands of the evil one even as we speak and gather together right now. Where was God? Where is God? God is in every act of compassion and mercy and help and all that will go on and is going on in that very setting in Connecticut. God is the one who is offering the message of the gospel, the good news, who says, Come to me, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and I will give you salvation and I will give you freedom. what has happened here, the horror of this destructive forces and principalities serves to remind us that we are in the battle for human hearts with urgency. And how wicked the enemy is, is portrayed for us and unveiled for us a little bit in Connecticut this week. I got to thinking that... um, what happened at that little school with those little kids is not dissimilar to what happened 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem. When a wicked, evil king was filled in his heart with the wickedness of Satan and ordered that all kinds of, the, the, the little boys under two years old in, in the town of Bethlehem would be slaughtered probably about 20 or 30 of them. And here's how wicked Satan is. Herod thought he was going to go and kill Jesus. He had an agenda to kill Jesus. The other little boys were just extraneous. But when Satan filled Herod's heart to kill those little boys in Bethlehem, he already knew that Jesus wasn't there. This was just a mass butchering of little boys under two just because that's who Satan is. And that's what happened in Connecticut. The butchering of those little kids is just because that's what Satan is. And that's the hopeless reality that envelops this hopeful, amazing presentation of the christmas story in galatians and so i want to wade through the details with you for a few moments why this great detail is presented to us as we are introduced to it when god's right time slams into the hopeless reality of mankind doom gives way to great joy I love the way this is put. But when the time had fully come, when God's timetable, according to His sovereign plan and purposes, had come to be, when everything was just right in God's deliverance daytime table, then God acted. When law time was up, when the period of preparation was up, when Israel's time and the law time has come to its, its, uh, its full preparation... It was inheritance time. It became fullness of the spirit time. It became freedom time. As we consider the the, uh, physical uh, descriptions and atmosphere of that particular time, when God decided after 450 years of silence uh, from the book of Malachi before anything in the New Testament came to be, uh, in that period of silence, all that was being prepared, the, the political scene was the Pax Romana. It would become a time where, where there was certain political stability. Yes, it was a dictatorship, and yes, it was wicked, but it was, it was stable. And, and in that stability of that government, there was a, 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 an urbanization that had now started to take place where, where people were gathering in towns and cities which would enable the gospel truth to be spread in a quicker way. The, the road system of the great Roman roads had, had, had made a, 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 a geographic uh, scenario whereby it would be easy to travel and to take the message. And because of the Greeks who had dominated that part of the world for the last couple of centuries, there was a common language whereby the truth of Christ could be proclaimed from person to person. So when the time was just right, and you know for some 400 plus years, God's people were, were asking, Oh Lord, how long? How long till you come? We long for Messiah. And they would pray and they would gather and they would worship just like we are. Gathering this morning and Pastor Kenneth praying, Oh Lord, how long? How long until you come and, and take us to be with yourself? And, and when the time is just right, in God's sovereign agenda, the next cosmic event on God's timetable, by the way, will be the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. You can read that in Romans chapter 11 and 25 and Luke 21 and 24. And the the time of the God of this world will be up when it is just right in God's timetable. But I love this as well. But when the time had fully come, God... That's the emphasis there. When the time had fully come, God, the the right time now is the right one. God sent his son. Who did we get in that manger? This answers the question. This is who we got. The eternal second person of the triune God was dispatched based on a prophecy 900 years before in 2 Samuel verse 7:14, where it says there, he will be my son and I will be his father. And the psalmist picks that up in Psalm chapter 2 and in this mess- messianic prophecy says that's the reference to the coming of the, tri- of the second person of the triune God. He will be the son and I will be his father. And the writer of Hebrews picks it up in Hebrews chapter 1 in defining who was that babe in the manger. Who was that one who walked among us? And it says in that text, who of any of the angels did God ever say, he is my son. I will be his father. And so you have this presentation. The one called the son was sent from heaven to, to earth. God himself came to be among us. That's why the for a prophet in Isaiah 9, 6 says, a son is given. The son of God was not born, he was sent. The word, the living word of God, the agent of creation called the son was sent. That's the message of Christmas. But not only that, it says in the prophecy of Isaiah, a son is given, but a child is born. And so you can see in the text, God sent His Son, born of a woman. The right likeness. The emphasis here is without the participation of a human father. Born of a woman. And you'll notice the language in places like Genesis 3.15 and Romans 8 and Philippians 2. He took upon Himself the form, the nature of a servant in appearance as a man. Emphasis is on fully human, but he took on himself the likeness of sinful flesh, but there was no sin in him to be a sin offering. John MacArthur points out, it had to be God to save us, but it had to be a man to be a substitute for us. And so in a plan that we could have never, ever imagined in our wildest um, dreams or imagination, God dispatched the second person of the triune Godhead to leave heaven and come to earth to be born of a woman, fully God, fully human, that he might do the saving work Of the eternal purpose and plan of God. Now, not only was he the right one in the right likeness, but he had the right requirements. Notice what it says here. Born under law. Why? Why does Paul emphasize that? Especially in the book of Galatians. When he is so adamant that we live our lives... By trusting in Christ alone. And and makes the distinction between the the law and and the grace of God. Why does he say this? Born under law. Why does he emphasize this? It is absolutely stunning but imperative for us to know. That Jesus, Jesus, the son of God, came to faithfully fulfill what no other person was able to do to that point or would ever be able to do. And that is to fulfill every precept and demand in obedience and perfect conformity to all of God's requirements. He was under the law, but never under sin. Because he alone was the only one who ever meticulously Perfectly fulfilled every single precept and demand. Which because makes him the perfect substitute for us. There was no violation of anything of the father. And so he becomes the perfect representative of not guilty before God. And I want to I check out with you for a moment Romans chapter 8 because there's some rich stuff we need to see there. It says in the text that what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by sinful nature. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. What does this mean? That he did what the law could not do. He provided a safe place from the storm of God's wrath for all those who would trust in him. Not only that, he set us free from the power of sin. How exactly did he do that? God didn't just call sin bad. That's what the law does. When we open up our Bibles, and and I've shared with you over these last number of weeks, in the book of Galatians, for instance, in the the acts or the works of the sinful nature, the, the Word of God already declares sin bad. God didn't just declare sin bad by sending Christ to be among us. What God did is took His Son and placed Him on a cross. And at the cross, He passed the final sentence ...on our sin and condemned it. Listen to what is said here. God did this by sending His own Son... ...and so He condemned sin in sinful man... ...in order that the righteous requirements of the law... ...might be fully met in us... ...who do not live according to this sinful nature... ...but according to the Spirit. What does this actually mean? It means that at the cross... ...God placed our sins on Christ... And put our sins on trial. And declared our sins guilty. And condemned them and punished them for all time. That now those in Christ might no longer be under condemnation. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because what the law was powerless to do. Which is transform us, change us save us, bring our sinful nature uh, under the dominion of the power of God. You, You can go in every house, in every country, in all the world, and you can write on every single wall the Ten Commandments. And every single person can gaze at those Ten Commandments... ...every single day of their lives. And they can try with their their strength of self-discipline... ...and all that is within them... ...to keep those Ten Commandments... And, ...and simply put, what the law was powerless to do... ...which is to tame the sinful nature... ...Christ did by going to the cross... ...taking our sins upon himself... ...even though he was sinless... ...putting our sins on trial condemning our sins and punishing them so that now we've been set free. That's the amazing truth of what he's talking about here, about being born under the law. Nailed to the cross, God so loved the world that he made a way to rescue us from the wrath that rightfully was targeted against our sin so that Christ would be our sin offering for us. And so there is nothing left for us to do, except by faith, receive the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's the amazing gift of Christmas. That's what Christ has done for us. And and it goes on to say in this same text in Galatians, that he was born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. The sinful nature can't be stopped by the law. Can we understand this? Can we finally receive this? Our sinful nature becomes enslaved to sin and subject to condemnation. Because our sinful nature is too strong for rules and rituals to tame. This is the divine battle of salvation. So what Christ did by offering himself as the sin offering is made the payment, the penalty for our sins by having our sins condemned. The sinful sin of sinful man has been condemned so that sinful people who have the sentence of death for failure to perfectly keep the law can receive the substitute benefits of the only one who kept the law perfectly. And that's what redemption is. It's the right rescue. We were sentenced to death, and we have now been rescued. Not only that, but here's the right result. Look what it says. To redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, this right res- this right result, right result. Um, when we think about being brought into a family as sons, first of all I want to again say to the women who are among us, this is not a gender issue, this is a status issue. So enjoy the status of this, because the description is so profound. The whole argument that he's been dealing with here is children, when we were children, or outside of faith in Christ, versus the difference salvation makes in our lives. Now, most of us understand the nature of adoption or bringing someone into our family. First of all, to be brought into a family, to be adopted, means you didn't start out in that family. No one, listen to me, no one on the face of the earth begins in the family of God. It is an act of God's grace and mercy to bring people into his family. That's what the message of Christmas is. That's the message of salvation. God brings people into his family. Now, most of us understand the nature of adoption, and most understand adoption is when you bring little children into your family. And when you bring little children into your family, they have, although they've been brought into the family, they have minimal rights because they're little children. They can't grab your, uh, your access card to, to, for Canada Trust and take off and clean out your bank account. At least they shouldn't be able to because they wouldn't probably know your password or anything of that nature because you don't give them that because they're little kids. The picture here is not about adopting little kids into a family. The picture is the adoption as sons with full rights, it says. We have been brought into the family of God, and we have been changed in that instant of from, from, uh, salvation from being enslaved to the elementary, basic, destructive principles of this world to the keys to the kingdom of God. That's the transition that's taking place here. This whole description of us is this son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, has come to be among us himself personally, was born of a woman and lived a a perfect life under the law that he might redeem or buy back each of us who could not live a perfect life under the law. And then to give us the status... Of adoption into his family with the full rights of all the benefits and all the blessings and all of the resources and all of the power and all of the strength of God accessible to us in an instant. That's the Christmas wow factor. From slaves to sin to keys to the kingdom. Everything, please, beloved, know this. Everything the Father has is yours. Access it. Access it. Call on the name of the Lord. And then, to make sure that God guards his investment, he places the Spirit in our hearts. Right? And because you are sons, Because he has brought you into his family. He has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The one who calls out father. So you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And since you're a son you're an heir. Now. Before we conclude this. Paul makes one last urgent plea. And I want to do that this morning as well. to To be honest to the text. And to be um, sensitive to the fact that the Spirit of God is at work among us. The great danger is to know all of this in our heads. And to miss it in our hearts. That's why he continues on to, to bracket this grand picture and vision of what God has done for us. By saying, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature were not are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, listen, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Satan tipped his hand so that we could all see his evil and wickedness this past week. But within the church, much of what Satan attempts to do is very subtle and is masqueraded. The great danger and the most subtle thing that Paul is talking about here that's uh, uncovered by him is that if Satan can't keep you satisfied with sin and you want something better in your life and you want to seek freedom in Christ, he will do a sneak attack on you if you're not careful. And pull you back to self-reliance. His modus operandi within the church setting, within a religious setting, is to get you dressed up in a costume of good behavior, law-abiding, for the most part, ten-commandment-keeping people. But doing it in your own strength. It's always been the same. You see, Satan uh, realizes that for the most part, he can't keep you from believing in Jesus. He believes in Jesus. He, He can't even keep you from intellectually responding to the truth that's here and believing that it's actually true. He already knows it's true. The subtle sneak attack of the enemy is to keep you trusting in your own strength. Relying on yourself. Trusting in your good behavior. Your rituals. Your church going behavior and habits. As the standard and criterion for pleasing God. And taking credit for it. And s- subtly You wouldn't overtly say this, but subtly believing in your heart that if it has to be, it's going to be up to me. It's going to be up to my strength and my self-discipline. And look at me. I go to church every week. Look at me. I'm reading my Bible on a regular basis. Look at me. I'm listening to the sermon. Special days. Special months. Special Christmas celebrations, special Easter celebrations. Look at me, I bring friends to hear the message of the gospel. All the while, we keep trusting in ourselves. Now beloved, you couldn't get saved that way. And you can't keep you can't have sa- sanctification going on in your life that way. Salvation is I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. This salvation journey from first to last is the grace of God by faith, trusting in Christ's work alone and what he does in your life. I can't bring any of my strength or my... my. Um, my uh, discipline to the Lord and say, look at me, look at what I've done. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm depending. The reason that I'm convinced that this is, uh, is alive and well even in our own congregation is because this has been the thing that has dogged the Christian congregation since the time of Paul. And I know some of you have have struggled with this whole series and understanding the nature of, of trusting in Christ by faith, relying on Him alone and not in your own strength, of not seeking to bring any of your gifts or behavior to God and say, look at me, look at this, look what I'm doing. I know you've struggled with this. But the simple truth is, so long as anything is manufactured in your own strength, your own trust in yourself. You will take credit for it. And God will be defamed. He's always wanted that of us. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. Go ahead. Eve. Take this. Do this. You will be like God. He just doesn't want us to be reliant on God. He wants you to keep trusting in your flesh instead of being free to trust in Christ alone. He wants you to continue to live in fear. Fear that you don't measure up. Fear that it's not going to work out for you. Fear of what's going to happen to you if you don't intervene in your life rather than faith in God. Demons will gladly endorse your relying on your rituals, even your good rituals. What they don't want is for you to completely trust in Jesus Christ and him alone to change your life, to energize your life, to enable your sinful nature to be put at bay and crucified. It really comes down to this, beloved. Am I going to try to keep myself a religious person? Or am I going to love Jesus Christ with all my mind, heart, soul, body, and strength? That's the dividing line. Will I love Jesus Christ and give myself to him and daily, daily, by faith, call out to him and trust in him alone? That's what sets before us every time we come to the truth of the gospel. What he has for us is freedom. Not freedom from, uh, not, not, not freedom, freedom from restraint. Freedom for faith in Christ. To trust Him. To rely on Him. That's the distinction. We've become a son, an heir, with the Spirit of God in us. Until Christ is formed in you. That's why Paul was so urgently calling to them in verse 5-3. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You're trying to be, you who are trying to be justified by the law are being alienated from Christ. You've fallen from grace. Anybody who's trying to be made right before God because of the behavior they in their own strength are doing, even if it's good... Paul says, if you do this, you've been alienated from Christ. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love for God and for your neighbor as yourself. So you, beloved, have been brought into his all-powerful resources, heirs, of all that God has, all of his power, all of his strength, all of his energy, please, please stop relying on the things that are too weak to change your life. That's what an heir is. To access all of the blessings and the inheritance that is yours. I would say in terms of this Christmas gift of God, The Spirit of God is the gift that keeps on giving. Rely on the Spirit of God in your life. Trust in Him. He'll chase out the last vestiges of the sinful nature out of your life and your slavery, former slavery, to destructive behavior. His gift to you is to finally be free of you. That's the gift and to have Christ who is all in all. Our Father, we pray now that the Spirit of God would drill this doctrine deeply into our hearts, that we would feast on it, grow by it, rely and trust in the Spirit of God. Lord, make us people of faith, faith in you. I pray may we um, experience the fullness and richness of this Christmas gift, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, what the law was powerless to do because our sinful nature, Lord, what rituals, what self-discipline, what attempts at good behavior, what what, uh, routine can never do tame our sinful nature. The Spirit of God overpowers so Lord may that be our starting point may that, may that be our daily journey point may that be the end point of every day and the start of the next day Lord God be Lord of my life I am yours I trust in you your grace is sufficient for me you are my all in all Deliver me from any pride or any thought that by flesh I can win this spiritual battle. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Someday, each of us are going to stand before Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that question will be raised, why should I let you into my heaven? And I can tell you for sure that my heart will break in a thousand pieces if anybody in Calvary or who's been in the sound of this ministry were to stand before Jesus Christ and say, well, I went to church every Sunday. I always brought people to the Christmas musical. I read my Bible regularly. I did really charitable and nice things. I use the talents and abilities I have to to teach people about Jesus. I think the uh, last phrase of this great Christmas hymn we just sang really says it all. The real answer, by thine all sufficient merit, Lord Jesus raised us to this glorious throne. That's it. It's not us. Nothing of us. How arrogant and prideful for us to think that we could bring anything to Jesus that would save us, would merit our salvation. Our salvation is by a gracious act of a merciful God who reached down even while we were yet sinners and loved us turned us around and brought us into his kingdom and loves us and put his Holy Spirit in our hearts that we might learn how to trust in him and live by faith in him alone and be satisfied in Christ. That's the Christmas truth. Make sure Make sure that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation and for your sanctification, for your growth. Depend on him. Rely on him. The demons don't care if you believe, but they shudder at a saint who's on her knees, relying on Christ alone. That matters. And that's the message at the water cooler this week don't shrink back. It's not going to be about your attending church and your good behavior and your going to Christmas musicals and Easter programs and all of that. It's going to be about what Jesus Christ alone can do in your heart and alone can do in the hearts of those who are in captivity to their sinful nature. And the reason a man goes in and shoots 26-year-olds is because his heart is captive to sin. And there is no amount of presidential edicts and management of sin that will fix that. It is only by the transforming work of Jesus Christ who buys us out of that slave market and changes us forever. Beloved, hold on to that for dear life because God has got a hold of you. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning. Oh God, help us. Help us to do what we can't possibly do. Help us to live for you and you alone, I pray, in your strength because of your grace. Amen.